So I'm here today with Joseph Simon, a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences at CU Boulder and a member of the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, aka Nanograv. Um, so Nanograv is searching for the signal from gravitational waves rippling throughout the universe, and they recently found a strong signal that could be indicative of these waves. So uh, Joseph or uh, Joe, how did you get started with Nanograv originally? What was it like getting started working with them? Sure. So I've actually been a part of this collaboration um, for about eight or nine years now. Uh, I was first introduced to the collaboration through my undergraduate advisor um, at uh, Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, I went to graduate school uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee uh, to work with um, Dr. Um, Javier uh, Siemens, who is the co-director uh, of the Nanograv um, Physics Frontier Center. So we're actually a NSF-funded uh, center. Uh, and I did my entire PhD um, work on simulating um, the, the kind of expected population sources of gravitational waves um, that nanograv and pulsar timing arrays in general uh, are sensitive to. Uh, and then um, I did my first postdoc at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, uh, and there working with um, Dr. Um, Michele uh, Valisneri, among others. Um, I, I, I took on kind of um, the search for the gravitational wave background in Nanograv's latest data set. Uh, and that was kind of my primary project uh, during my previous postdoc. And then over the summer, um, I came here uh, and started a new postdoc working with um, experts here uh, who study galaxy mergers uh, and were trying to work on how we can link galaxy merger observations with uh, our uh, gravitational wave observations uh, from pulsar timing. So what has it been like working with um, others at Nanograph and what has it been like working as part of the observatory? Sure, so um, I'll say that uh, we are a, a gravitational wave observatory, um, but to get our gravitational wave data, we actually, um, use a variety of radio telescopes. So the objects that we observe are a system of, are um, a variety of millisecond pulsars um, that emit in the radio. Uh, and these are kind of commonly known as kind of the cosmic lighthouses. So they're um, emitting and they're actually spinning incredibly fast. So you can kind of imagine, uh, about one and a half times the mass of the sun, kind of shrunk down into the size um, of a kind of urban downtown, um, spinning about as fast as your kitchen blender. Um, these are some really crazy uh, exotic objects. Uh, and a subset of them actually spin incredibly stably. And so their, their precision uh, is actually about um, the same uh, as we can get in an atomic clock on Earth. 
And so what we do uh, is we, we use some of the largest radio telescopes in the world. Um, in North America in particular, this is the um, Arecibo Observatory um, and the Green Bank Telescope. Uh, and so we use those telescopes to observe these pulsars and then those pulsars become our data um, for searching for the gravitational waves. So with this research process that you've described a little bit with working at Nanograv, so some of these waves and some of the, the uh, are theorized to take um, years or decades to pass. Um, and the program's been going on for about 13 years, I believe. Um, so as you measure these, uh, what's it like being part of this kind of like long haul research process? Um, yeah, uh, great question. So um, there are, I think about a hundred or so kind of full members in the Nanograv collaboration. Um, when I first got started, um, it was probably more like 40 or 50. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we've really kind of expanded um, in the last, you know, five plus years. Um, and we are a distributed collaboration. So there's not kind of one hub. Um, there's a lot of um, universities and institutions um, that are a part uh, of the collaboration and contribute. And so um, even as I've been working with the same, you know, kind of core, you know, 20 to 30 people, um, we have all changed institutions as we've done that. Um, and as, as, as we do that, we're able to um, work with new collaborators and bring in people um, who are experts in other fields and kind of grow our, our kind of core team. Um, and so it's, it's a little different than kind of going to the lab and kind of working with the same team um, face to face every day. Um, even before the uh, pandemic, we did a lot of online video calls, um, lots of collaborative um, structures, um, kind of that now we're all doing, um, but we've been doing um, for quite some time now. Uh, and, and so that's really, that's really kind of uh, an interesting and a unique experience, um, uh, I'd say. And, and it's kind of allowed us all to continue to broaden our horizons while also kind of continuing to um, work on this project kind of slowly over, um, over all of this time. Uh, so yeah, so we've been, uh, the data set that we just released uh, um, covers about 13 years of data, but it actually only ran up through observations that were taken through the summer of 2017. So uh, we're currently working on our next data set, which includes uh, over 15 years of data. And um, yeah, it's, it's a much different process to kind of think about um, a project on a kind of decades long time scale. It's not, uh, it's not the same kind of, you know, you're gonna go into your lab, 
you're going to get your data, you're going to study your thing, you're going to publish it, and then you're going to move on. It's it it's this really iterative process, and kind of everything that we learn about our data is then applicable as we add additional um, data and sources. So our, our methods have really evolved, um, and I expect that they will continue to as we learn more. So you mentioned your methods for this research, and I'm curious, you mentioned pulsars and just kind of how crazy um, of objects they were. Uh, and I'm just wondering, is there a specific reason why pulsars, uh, is there any kind of like unique qualities then that makes them like ideal for you to use for this research, seeing as how you're measuring the light from them? Sure. So um, to search for gravitational waves, really what we're looking for is the stretching and squeezing of space-time. And so you can kind of, um, a lot of those early kind of thought experiments that Einstein was doing was um, all of them started on the basis of laying down a grid of clocks. And so what you wanna have is, is a bunch of independent clocks all across your kind of space-time. Um, and so, uh, there have been a variety of gravitational wave experiments um, over the years. The, the one that, that I'm sure most people have heard of is the LIGO experiment. And so they use lasers on the ground to kind of measure the, the, the stretching and squeezing of space-time um, in terms of how long um, the various arms are that the lasers um, travel down. So for pulsar timing, we are using all of these pulsars as our kind of network of independent clocks. And you can imagine that the earth is kind of floating on this background of gravitational waves that's kind of squeezing and stretching space time in all directions. And so as the earth is kind of bobbing, um, we'll get kind of pushed in one direction or like the space time in a certain part of the sky will get squeezed. And so the pulses from the pulsars in that part of the sky start to um, arrive sooner than we expect. And, and at the same time that that's happening, um, space time is being stretched in another direction. And so the pulsars in that part of the sky, all of those pulses are coming a little bit later than you expect. And so you're kind of searching across the entire sky, looking for this, this kind of correlated process where the pulses in one pulsar are kind of coming at, at a, um, a bit ahead of schedule and a bit behind schedule compared to the pulses um, from pulsars in a different part of the sky. And so to really be able to measure that correlation pattern, um, we want to be monitoring as many pulsars across the sky as we can. Uh, and so these pulsars, because they are such precise clocks, they're, they're ticking at, at a, uh, at a very accurate and precise um, 
rate. And so we're able to then use that uh, as our kind of grid of clocks to then measure the stretching and squeezing of space time. So it's not just finding where it's kind of being pulled, but you also have to have a little push and pull in both directions to kind of get that. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the biggest things that's different in terms of searching for a gravitational wave and pulsar timing data, as opposed to the searches that LIGO is doing, for instance, LIGO is really sensitive to the the kind of final in spiral, the, the um, merging and coalescing of two black holes. Uh, and so that is a, uh, a, that takes a finite amount of time. And so there's parts of your data where you have a signal and there's parts of your data where you don't. And so you, you're, um, you're kind of searching for that um, signal stream. For pulsar timing, the signal that we're searching for is is um, throughout our entire data span. So there's not a a section of our data that we can search at, um, and we can say, okay, there's only noise here. We can just use this to study the noise because the signal is everywhere. And so, because of that, we need to um, model all of our noise at the same time as we're searching for that signal. And so we need some distinct feature that says, this is the signal we're searching for and not some other source of noise. And so that distinct feature is that kind of correlation pattern between pulsar pairs. So it's not just that we're seeing a signal in any individual pulsar or even kind of in the entire pulsar timing array. It's not just that we see, okay, the earth is kind of moving around slightly, but that it's we're searching for that specific correlation pattern that says space time is being stretched and squeezed by a gravitational wave. So just while you're talking there, you cut out for a few seconds. Ju oh, it was uh, just before you mentioned kind of like how there's what, some noise here and not noise another. Can you just uh, restate that for our listeners real quick? Yes. Sorry. Um, no worries. It happens. <laughs> All right. So um, what was I saying? There's oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, so in our data set, the, there is not um in our data set the signal is in the entire data stream there's not a section of data that we can um search in and say there is no signal here there's only noise and so because we have a signal that we have to simultaneously search for at the same time as the noise that means that we need to search for something else that is distinct about that signal that says, this is a gravitational wave background, not some other source of noise. Okay, gotcha, thank you. Um, and with this, so you're not yet able to say that this is the gravitational wave though, but it is promising. What else would you have to find to say that, yes, this is these gravitational waves? So what we haven't found yet is this distinctive cross correlation pattern 
what we have found is a is a common noise process. So all of the pulsars are kind of seeing a similar long time scale um, signal. And so it's kind of that, you know, um, if we go back to the earth is kind of bobbing on this sea of gravitational waves, all of the pulsars kind of agree that the earth is bobbing, but, but they don't quite have the information to say what is causing that bobbing of the earth. And so to be able to say this is due to a gravitational wave background, what we really need to see is that cross correlation where the pulses in, in different pulsar pairs, depending on where they are on the sky, are um, arriving a little bit sooner or a little bit later compared to each other in this kind of really specific way that says this is a gravitational wave. Uh, and so we expect that kind of this is how the gravitational wave background would appear in our data. We expect to kind of see this kind of loud common signal, but it doesn't quite have the, the, the spatial information about what's happening in each pulsar to be able to definitively say, this is a gravitational wave. And so that's the next step. Um, and we hope that with this next data set that we are producing, um, that we'll be able to, to have evidence that this is actually what we're seeing. Or if it's not, um, then we have to kind of try to understand wh what is causing this noise. So if it were not to be these gravitational waves, are there any other ideas of what it might be? So um, that's a great question. Um, most of the sources of noise that we know could look like this um, are things that we've already checked for, things that we've already um, put in separate models for, and we're not seeing evidence for any of these other things. So for instance, at each telescope, there is a reference clock that we then, um, that we um, use to, compare to the observations that we're taking. There could be small changes in that reference clock over time, but it would affect all pulsars observed at that telescope in the exact same way. Um, we don't see any evidence of a signal that's impacting everything in, in the exact same way. Um, one of the other things is, of course, the Earth isn't really an inertial observer, right? The Earth is spinning. Uh, and it's rotating around the sun. So what we do is we actually project each observation that we take to the center of mass of the solar system. And there could be some error in how we do that. And in fact, um, when I was working at JPL, uh, um, we discovered that the knowledge of where the center of mass of the solar system is wasn't accurate, wasn't accurate enough for what we needed. Um, we are really kind of sensitive to kind of, uh, uh, um, we need to know the accuracy of the center of mass of the solar system to about the size of a football field. So if you can kind of think about the size of the entire solar system, so out to Pluto and beyond, we need to 
know where the center of that is to the size of a football field, which is incredibly, incredibly precise. Uh, and we didn't know that. So we actually developed some models to incorporate the uncertainty in that. Um, and we are using those models. And when we do that, we still see this really strong common process signal. So we don't think that's the cause, um, but there could be other things out there we don't know of that we're not um, correcting for. Um, but everything that we know of, we have done our best to correct for it. Um, and, and it doesn't seem like any of those issues are causing what we're seeing. All right. And now finding these waves and this background noise as Siebelder today described it would be a major scientific achievement. So what would the implications of finding these waves be? It's a great question. Um, and so we expect um, that the gravitational wave background in the frequency band that we're searching for um, is coming from a cosmic population of binary supermassive black holes. So these are the black holes that are, are residing at the centers of massive galaxies. We know that galaxies merge. We know that the merging of massive galaxies is a key piece of, kind of how large structure forms in the universe. And so, um, but we don't actually have any direct observations of merging supermassive black holes. And so there's a lot of questions about how do galaxies merge? How do galaxies evolve with their central supermassive black holes? They, there seems to be some correlation between the mass of the black hole at the center of a galaxy and the galaxy itself. So it seems as if they've been co-evolving throughout cosmic time, but we don't have any real way of, of, of obser observing that process. Uh, and so what the gravitational wave background would open for us is a completely unique window onto how massive objects in the universe are evolving and are growing over time. And uh, in that C. Boulder Today article, they also mentioned that kind of um, finding these waves is one thing, finding out what causes them is the next step. So you've mentioned these like supermassive black holes that reside at the center of you know, larger galaxies and how that could be one cause. Um, are there any ideas or other theories about what those waves might be being caused by? Um, is there anything else that could be causing this to happen? Absolutely. There's a, there's a variety of theories that predict different gravitational wave backgrounds. I will say the, the most likely source is this cosmic population of binary supermassive black holes. We know that supermassive black holes are out there. We know that they form binaries. We just haven't seen them at small enough separations to emit gravitational uh, waves where we're searching for them. Um, but we know that all the processes to form them are there. Now, additionally, there could be uh, a population of cosmic strings. And so these are 
you know, topological defects from the very early universe. Uh, and they potentially radiate uh, gravitational waves and they could form a background that we would be sensitive to. We could be sensitive to gravitational waves from primordial black holes. So the first black holes that formed in the universe. We could be sensitive to kind of phase transitions in the early universe. Those could potentially cause um, gravitational waves as well. All of these things are a bit more kind of exotic, a bit more theoretical, but um, we are able to place direct constraints on them and uh, and they the gravitational wave signal that we would um, uncover would look slightly different for each of these models. And so we expect that if we're able to definitively determine that we have a background of gravitational waves, then the next step is to then test all these models and say, okay, which model best fits with the signal that we are seeing? Um, as I said, it's most likely from this cosmic population of binary supermassive black holes, but there are a huge number of other exotic um, objects and theories that would um, create similar signals. And, and it will be really exciting to explore all of them uh, and to, to kind of really dig into um, what the source of this potential signal is. And that comes to the end of my questions, but I'm wondering, you mentioned that data set that you had only went up until about the summer of 2017 and that you're getting started with your next data set, which would take, I believe you said 15 years of research. Mm -hmm. So when would you have that data set complete? So we expect to have that data set complete um, probably within a year. Um, we're currently putting together the data set now, and then we'll start to to, to do some preliminary analyses. Uh, and so within a year or two, uh, we should we should have a sense of uh, of whether or not what we're seeing in our data is uh, is actually the first hints of a gravitational wave background or not. That comes to the end of my question. So just before we go, is there anything else you'd like to uh, say to our listeners, anything to leave as a last note, or if there's just anything else you wanted to mention in this interview, um, now's your time. Uh, well, thank you. Um, thank you for your interest um, in this topic. And, um, and I hope that uh, once we get that next data set um, put together and analyzed, um, I'll be able to come back and share with you what we have found or not found. Um, it's going to be really exciting um, either way. And uh, it, this is a, a, a really exciting time to be a part of gravitational wave astronomy. Joe, thanks for coming and talking with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you.